We are at the end of our series in the book of Acts. And the series has been called Our Hearts Burn Within. And as we come to the end of the series, we also come to the end of Paul's life. All of Acts has been building up to this culminating point that's kept telling us Paul, this hero of the Christian faith, is about to die. And he's about to be martyred and he knows it. Now, okay, look at me. If somebody is about to die and they know it, you should listen to every word that they have to say to you. Because when you're about to die, you begin to think about what's most important. Whenever I officiate a funeral, I'm always, I always leave a, taking an assessment of my life. How am I doing with loving the people that I should be loving? How am I doing with loving all of you? How am I doing with loving my family? There is something about funerals that make you say, I wonder what would be said about me at my own. What kind of legacy am I leaving behind? How have I done loving the people that are important to me? And have I made a difference in this world? And I think every, every one of us would say we would like a life well lived. Now the disappointing reality is that statistically speaking, I don't think we ever really, all of us really achieve what we would call a well lived life. And so today I want to ask the question, how do we live a good life? How at the end, how do we know we have run the race and we finished it well? So there's five things we're going to look at today that embodies Paul. And here they are. A devotion to the word, a devotion to action, a devotion to God's glory, a devotion to grace, and a, a beginning with the end in mind. In other words, you have to know the end you have to know your end is great to live a life well lived. So let me set the context for you. Again, the book of Acts keeps telling us Paul's about to die. And, you know, it's so disappointing. Um, and it's a dangerous thing to say you're disappointed in the Bible. And I'm not disappointed in the Bible, of course. But I was really ready to hear the end of Paul's life. But the end of Acts ends with a cliffhanger. And my curiosity always gets the better of me. So I had to go keep on looking. And if you go with me to do that, you'll find that what we need to do to hear the end of Paul's life is, in his last words, we need to go to 2 Timothy. Because 2 Timothy is where he pens his last words. So here's the context. Last week we saw that Paul had been arrested, and he's, he's imprisoned, and he's on this ship. And they almost die on the ship, and they're headed for Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he's put under house arrest. Because the trial has not yet happened. And for two years... Paul is waiting under house arrest because no but his accusers have not come to testify against him. And the law is that you wait up to two years for your accusers to come and testify. So for two years, he's sitting there in Rome under house arrest and he can't leave. Finally, after two years, and, oh, and by the way, while he's under this house arrest, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians, some of, the, some of my favorite books in the Bible. He's finally freed, and he leaves to go west to Spain. He preaches the gospel there, but then eventually he's arrested again. This is two years later, and now he is in a real prison in Rome, 
It's dark and damp, and he knows he's about to die. This is his end, and that's when he writes 2 Timothy. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read the end of Acts, and then we're going to jump into 2 Timothy. So let me do that for us now. The end of Acts, the last two verses say this. This is while he's under house arrest. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Second Timothy, this is while he is in this prison awaiting his death. He says, for I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verse 18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul's very last words. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. First point. A life devoted to the word. For two years, Paul is under house arrest And his doors are wide open for anybody who wants to come in and talk with him about the kingdom of God and about Christ, opening up the scriptures with them. For Paul, his life is completely devoted to the word. He lives and breathes the word. The word is his food, and he offers this feast to anybody who will come and listen to him. Now, the question you should be asking yourself right now is this. Is devotion to the word of God essential for a life well lived? Because this is a bold claim that I'm making here. Because you might be saying, well, yeah, David, I see what you're saying, but like, what if I don't buy this whole thing that this is the word of God? What if I'm not so sure what to make of this? Are you saying that my life won't be well lived? Well, yeah. And let me give you, let me tell you why. Because we all live our lives based on what we believe to be true. And truth will guide everything that you do. And if you have found the truth above all other truths, then you will live your life devoted to that truth. And then what will happen is there will be a fire that is now burning within you with with this truth. And this truth is going to burn to get out of you. And when it gets out of you, it's going to be placed on the ears of your listeners. And then they themselves will have found this truth that gives life. And then they can hand it off to others. And then who can hand it off to others? I mean, if you think about Christianity was started with 12 men who found something to be true. And it burned to get out of them. And the whole book of Acts is essentially that story. What happens when this truth is put in you and then so burns to get out? And this is pretty cool. 
I think it's cool. I think you'll think it's cool. So the writer of Acts and Luke, they're the same person. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts. And there's this little part that links them together, I believe. And it's at the end of Luke when two, this is the story, there's two of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus has just died. He's been crucified. And they're walking this dusty road to Emmaus, and they're brokenhearted. And as they're traveling on this road, a mysterious traveler comes and joins them. And he begins to tell them how everything that happened to the Christ was essential. And it was talked about in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. It was foreseen, and it was foreshadowed, and it was prophesied to happen. And then it happens in the Christ, and they begin to see how this mysterious traveler is right about everything he's saying. And then they they invite him to have dinner with them, and they're all sitting there. And then the mysterious traveler breaks the bread. And immediately they realize, this is the Christ. It's him. He's back. And as mysteriously as he got here, he leaves. And here's what the disciples said about this. He said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up with us the scriptures? This is what truth will do to you. It has to get out. And if you have God's truth in you, it's going to burn like fire until it gets out. And that's how you could describe Paul's life. I want to read to you from Jeremiah. I think this so describes Paul in his life. This is Jeremiah speaking about God, and he says, If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire. Shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. No better way to describe Paul. If this truth is true, there's nothing more powerful than this truth. And it burns to get out. You could speak a billion words in your lifetime, and they won't even come close to the power if you speak just a few words of Christ, who he is and what he's done and how the grace that he gives absolutely changes everything. And that will mean that at the end of your life, at your funeral, if you have lived your life devoted to this truth and to offering it to others, like this is the thing that you live by. And it's not that you are, you know, here, here's most of our problems. We're reading this trying to figure out what to make of it. Like, what, what about this? I'm not so sure if I agree with that. Well, what about that? I'm not so sure if I agree about that. And, and we've never come to consider, well, what does this make of us? And if you are devoted to this, this word, you will stop reading it and you will begin to let it read you. And now you have begun to read the Bible the right way. And that will mean at the end of your life, if you are devoted to it, you will be devoted to a life that is built around it. And then you will be, you will at your funeral will be people sitting in those pews whose lives have been changed because you spoke truth to them. And then they spoke that truth to others. And it burned from person to person to person. And you see a whole bunch of lives changed. And what that means then is in paradise, you can be there as the gates open and let people in who are in because you played a part in their story. And my prayer for all of us as a church is together we could collectively gather and just be welcoming in people in the gates because they were there because of the words that we have spoken that burned within us to get out. So, a life devoted to the word. Second, a life devoted to action. 
Paul is a man of action. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. These are words of action. And if you just look at the world, the people who make the biggest impact are the people who act. Not that sit in a room and think about it, not that form a committee to wonder what it looks like to live a good life, but the people who go out and live it. People who accomplish a lot are driven by many different things. Some people by fame, some people by glory, some people by guilt and shame, but not Paul. Paul is driven by love. For Paul, everything is about love. He says in 1 Corinthians 13 that if you do anything without love, you are a noisy gong, you're a clanging cymbal. In other words, everything that you do is just kind of a little bit annoying. And there's no productivity behind it at all because it lacks love. Paul fights for love, he fights with love, and his motivation is love. And then he says he kept the faith. This is the, the way this is phrased, this isn't just simply belief. This is a belief that fuels a life of action. And if you want to know what a life of action looks like based off of the Bible, there are two phrases, love God and love others. Again, it's coming down to love. And then Paul says, I have poured my life out as a drink offering. This is, this is a language of sacrifice. And Jesus says, there's no greater love than this. And someone lay down his life for his friends. Sacrifice. A life poured out as a drink offering. Now, can I speak honestly to you? I guess I can because I've got the microphone, so you'd have to take it from me to stop me. But um, I, I know us. I know our area. I'm from here. And before we started this church, I spent a long time studying what we are like in this area. And the number one way that I would say we could define us and what we want is a life of comfort. Now, what you think I'm about to do is to say to you, if you want to have a well-lived life, you can't chase comfort. And that's not what I'm going to say to you. In fact, I'm going to say to you quite the opposite. You should turn your desire for comfort all the way up to 10. And when it's all the way up to 10, what you're going to begin to do is to stop seeking comfort from things of this earth. It's not going to be found in having that, finally having that home, finally having that car, finally having whatever, but it's going to be found in Christ. And when you found it all in Christ, what you're going to begin to do is to be able to be brave. Because you have a comfort now that can't be taken from you. No matter what's before you, no matter what's behind you, no matter what's happening to you right now, you have a comfort that is found in Christ that cannot be stolen. So now you can finally begin to pour your life out as a drink offering. You can finally live the life that you've been called to live. I think deep down, you know what you should be doing with your life. And I think deep down, all of us know we should be living for more than we are. And what's stopping us? It's fear. Fear that we're not going to have comfort. That we're not going to have something that will soothe us. And... 
if you have Christ, comfort can't be stolen from you. So you can live with all of your might while you're living because comfort can't be stolen from you. Let me say this too. Truth and love must be married together. If you, now I will say this, you cannot welcome someone into paradise without words. The gospel is literally means news and news must be spoken. However, if you do not love people well, your words will be empty. The problem is not the words. The problem becomes the vessel. Now, let me tell you a little thing that happens and I'll connect all of this. So usually when somebody begins to come to the grove and they're not a Christian and then they become a Christian and, and they're learning how to live their life now as a Christian and they're not really sure and they're a little hesitant about a few things and then, uh, you know, I, I'm going to hang out with them and then I'm going to hang out with their, their family and their friends uh, that don't go to church. They start to get a little scared. Maybe this happened with you where, oh my gosh, I've got that one friend that's got just a horrible mouth. And David's going to get around that friend. Like, what's going to happen? Is he going to be upset with me? Is he going to reject my friends? Is he going to reject me? Because I'm going to feel rejected if he rejects my friends. And it's like this whole turmoil that's happening. And let me just say something. If I am just a little bit of the kind of pastor that the Bible has called me to be, then your friend with the dirty mouth I'm not going to be repelled by them. I'm going to be drawn to them. Because the heart of Christ is not repelled by sinners. He's compelled to go and chase them down. He is a good shepherd. And the good shepherd has come to find the lost sheep. And all of us have been lost. So he's drawn to the hearts of those who are lost. He's drawn to the hearts of sinners. Especially those who know that, who know that they're sinners. And so my question to us is, is the door of your heart open to sinners? Because when you look at Paul, John Stott in his great commentary on Acts says that when his door is open while he's under house arrest, the primary people who are coming to see Paul are Gentiles. Gentiles are outsiders. Gentiles are the ones who have been called unclean. Gentiles are the ones where the good Jewish leaders are not to eat with them because they might get their uncleanness. And yet Paul's door is open. So is your door open to your heart, the door of your heart open to those who cuss probably a little bit too much, to those who drink too much, to those who are addicted to drugs, to, to the pimps and the prostitutes, to, to the hypocritical Christian who just annoys you, to the failed leaders, to crooked politicians, to the greedy businessman. The door of Christ is open to all sinners who are just willing to say, yeah, I need a savior. And, and if, you know, the, the person who's super churchy, and, I, you know, I'm being, I'm, I'm being funny when I say that, um, is saying, yeah, but David, my holiness, like, won't my holiness be affected by this? And my answer is absolutely if you do not live a life that is devoted to the word. 
But if you live a life devoted to the word and a life devoted to action, then you will be the type of person that overcomes evil with good, with love and not judgment. And that's how the world has changed around you. That's how you live a well-lived life. By being a shepherd and not living a life of idleness, protecting yourself from the world, but stepping into the world to overcome evil with good. With love, so you're not wasting your time. And that is what it looks like to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith, to have your life poured out as a drink offering. And then you will begin to live a life that is devoted to glory. So Paul says at the end of his letter, 2 Timothy, and you say, wait, I've read 2 Timothy. It's not the very end. He says more. Well, no, he speaks. This is the last thing he speaks because here's probably what happened. Paul is there with Luke and he's, and he's speaking the words in 2 Timothy and Luke is writing them down. So the last words he speaks is, all glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. A lot of people have a problem with God wanting glory. There's a catechism. A catechism is, is a collection of questions with answers that go along with them. And there's one called the Westminster Catechism. And this is, a, this is essentially what happened is a whole group of great minds, theologians, got together and said, what's the Bible say? And then they said, what's probably the most important question? Let's put that first. And here's what it is. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of mankind? And their answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If I could tweak that a bit, I'd say to glorify God by enjoying him. And this is the same thing with comfort. You, you know, the, the problem with many Christians is they're trying to turn their joy desires down. And, and what the Bible's trying to do is say, turn your desires for joy all the way up. And then you're finally going to run past everything, everything that this world has to offer you. Because you see it and you're like, that's not going to give me the joy I seek. I'm seeking something eternal. I'm seeking something everlasting. I'm seeking something that can give me a joy no matter what I'm facing. And so you run right into the arms of Christ. And then when you're swimming in that joy that he gives you, then you finally actually want his name to be glorified. Do you see? If you feel like there's something wrong with God asking to be glorified, you've not met him. If you think it's dull to seek the glory of God, probably what you're doing with most of your life is trying to earn God's love. And by trying to earn God's love, you're not getting it because it's not something that's earned. It's something that's given by grace. And so you're not actually enjoying him. He, he seems like a slave driver to you, constantly demanding you to do more and you're never keeping up. So the thought of being with God is not joyful. Well, you won't want his glory. If the idea of building his kingdom doesn't seem exciting, you haven't seen the beauty of it yet. Finding joy in him will lead to a well-lived life because then you will be able to hand that joy off to others from person to person to person and then you will have left a legacy behind you. Fourth point, the mark of a well-lived life is a life of grace. I hinted at this already. Too many Christians are still trying to earn God's acceptance when it's already been given. 
And now all you simply need to do is enjoy it. Do you see what grace does? You can never really enjoy God if you're constantly seeing this mark that you're not hitting. Because then he's going to feel like someone who's always looking down on you saying you're not enough. And that doesn't sound like joy to me. That sounds like slavery. That sounds like a prisoner. But he set you free by grace. And, and I know you're doing it because I see you doing it. And I could spot it well because I do the same thing. We are all in recovery, bless you, learning how to just enjoy his love that's been given as a gift. Like, if you want to live a life well lived, just learn how to accept his love, his grace. Not because you earned it, but because he just desires to give it to you. And when you found this grace, you're going to be passionate about giving it to others. And that means that a life lived well always starts with grace. And I want you, I want you to see, and, he, and here's the proof. Every single letter that Paul writes, besides Galatians, because he's a mad as a pit bull in Galatians, but every single letter he writes, it starts by saying grace to you. I don't know if you knew this, you astute Bible readers, and it, every single letter ends with grace be with you. So you have grace to you and grace be with you. And what he means by this is that everything he's saying in his letters to these churches are words of the grace of God. And they are life-giving words. But he's saying also, don't forget them. Don't let them escape, but write them on the tablet of your heart so they'll stay with you. And when they stay with you, they will begin to burn within. And then these, these fire within you will desire to leap out to others. And as it does in a world filled with sinners, the only balm is the fire within you that is leaping out of you to offer grace to the world around you. Grace about the Christ who is drawn, not repelled from sinners, but drawn to them, who seeks them out even as they run from him, who can't help it but to risk everything to go and be with sinners. That's who your God is. And he came to make us worthy, not find those who are worthy, because those who are worthy do not exist. He's the only worthy one, and he died to make us worthy. It's Christianity. And something I have noticed at funerals is that people are very quick to offer grace to those who have passed away. So my charge to us is to live like dying men and women, eager to offer grace to dying men and women. And if you'll live that way, you'll live a well-lived life. And then the last one. You have to begin with the end in mind. And there are two ends in view that Paul has. He has this crown of righteousness, and then he's thinking of his own departure from this life. All right, now, let me, let me explain to you this crown of righteousness. It's, it's, we're meant to have a visual of a garland that an athlete has just won because they won the race. This garland, this crown of evergreen leaves around their head. And Paul sees this as a crown of righteousness. And he's receiving it upon his death. Now, the question is, is he receiving it because he earned it? 
or is it by grace? And the answer is yes. Here's what I mean. The Christian has been credited with a righteousness that they didn't achieve, but it was a gift. You are seen as having lived the perfect life that Jesus Christ lived by faith. However, you're here, but you're credited to here. And what is happening to you as you walk through this life every single day is you are growing a little bit more to look like this. And it's not because you're so wonderful. It's because you have learned the art of dependence upon Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. He is the root system. We are the tree. And, and he, makes, he, he says this thing that is absolutely offensive if you aren't a Christian. He says, you can do no good apart from me. And what he's saying is any fruit in your life, any goodness in your life, any righteousness... It's coming from dependence on him. But even this righteousness that you're going to get when you get this crown, like you didn't earn it, it's a gift. You've just become something he's credited you with becoming. And he's done the work in you. And as soon as you think you're doing the work, what happens is you kind of fall a little bit. And you become less human. You become less divine. Become less of who you're made to be. But when you stop trying to become more and depend on him, you become more. Everything in this life is about dependence on him. And then the second part. Before Paul gets this crown, he says, my departure is soon. John Stott, again, in his great commentary on Acts, says that this word departure is is, is a bit of a sailing term. And what he means is that the ropes that are tied to the dock of this world and in this life have been untied. And Paul is about to set sail across the trackless sea, through the celestial shores, all the way to the waves of paradise that are awaiting him. In other words, he's excited about death, he's eager. He sees death as an adventure. This is not a suicidal mission that he is on. He says in Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what he means by that is God has called me to do something in this life. And I'm going to stay here and live with all of my might while I do live. Everything I do is devoted to Christ, to this, to the word of God. And I'm going to live like that. But when it's time for me to come home, I am so excited about it. It's like he sees the door of death as an old friend that he gets to walk through because he is curious about the joy he's about to enter into. And you know what that does if you know that that's your end? It makes you stop clinging to this world. And as soon as you stop clinging to this world, now your life can finally be poured out as a drink offering. And now, you're not going to leave anything left over. What that means is you are going to live your life to the fullest. By grace, for the glory of God, in his word, fighting for love. And you leave nothing left over. You're poured out completely. You have not wasted a bit of your life. 
And you see every day like that. And then the day you wake up, you're like, I need rest. He's there to offer you that too. He gives you everything that you need for a life well lived. Perhaps think of it like this. Plan like you have a long life. But love like today's your last day. And love people like it's their last day. And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, you have to look at Christ. Look at your Savior. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. And his life was poured out as a drink offering. And he left nothing behind. But he left everything behind because of it, if that makes sense to you. He received the crown of righteousness. But really what happened is first, he received a crown of thorns so we could receive the crown of righteousness. And he departed from this world into hell so when we depart, we might enter into paradise. In other words, he traded places with us. His life was poured out as a drink offering. And he stood in our place as that drink offering so that we could then stand in his. And then upon rising from the grave, what happened is he became a wellspring of life and love and joy and peace and grace and forgiveness. Everything that you need when he rose from the dead, he became that thing. And what that means for you now is if you want to live a well-lived life, here's why it all boils down to what you make of Christ, because he is the wellspring of life. And if you're going to pour your life out as a drink offering, you're going to be empty. And you can't live an empty life. But if he is the wellspring, then every time you pour your life out as a drink offering, you go back and depend on him and he fills you back up. And you pour your life out as a drink offering that day and he fills you back up. Do you see why it's all about dependence on him? So, live every day to its fullest, fighting for the word, fighting for a life of action, fighting for his glory, living for grace, and knowing your ending, and you'll live well. Let's pray. God, there's a lot of reasons why we don't want to live a full life. You know what they are. You know what we fear. And I pray that you would give us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love. And that when we face danger, we would be self-controlled because we know that we are only comforted in you and you're enough and you're good. So we're going to stand in the goodness of you. We're going to live in that goodness. And we're going to know that that goodness will not leave us or forsake us. You are our joy. You're our comfort. You're our life. Help us live well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at The Grove Church Official, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.